federal funding there was such an investment in native land and native people but i think that's like the bigger question is like were these policies an investment for like the people or the land that you know native our relatives occupy and i think that's still a question that i'm in, like intrigued with right now especially when we begin to think of this idea of modernity and the translation of modernity is it you know what's being modernized is it native people or the land itself that was a clip from my interview with zoe toledo she is in the master's program for architecture at harvard university i came across her article during my research on the 1930s navajo livestock reduction for a final paper i was pleasantly surprised to recognize her name as well as the similar research topic so in this episode we talk about modernity it's a big word, it's a big concepts, it's a narrative, it's a discourse, it's interesting. We also talk about the Navajo Nation during the 30s and the particular projects and policies that were taking place during that time, as well as some other related narratives that were predominant at the time that influenced some folks like John Collier. I would like to thank Zoe for joining the podcast and talking to me on this episode. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. This is the Wish Day Podcast. When I first began this work, like modernity and the idea of modernity was not on my mind at all. In fact, like it literally began as an investigation of like photographs. I came across, there was this one article published on like, you know, the tribal council house in Window Rock. So it was, I came across these old architectural plans and photographs. And that's kind of what started this whole project and investigation of like, the New Deal development um, on the Navajo Reservation. It's really exciting because like, I feel like a lot of people aren't aware that like, they think of New Deal and they think of like, you know, the worker, the WPA, they think of land conservation, but what they don't realize is that there was actually an Indian New Deal championed by John Collier. And he really got invested (laughs) into this project. But, you know, I think a lot of scholars have written about it. They have shown many kind of memos into your writings. But for me, the photographs of these New Deal projects was the the biggest part that really excited me. And so, like, from, you know, you hear about, like, this development project taking place on the reservation. And it's not just, you know, people coming in and, like, building homes. It's... Um, Collier, he was creating three different projects, essentially. He had his tribal council house in Window Rock, Arizona, which he was working on. And then he also had these um, smaller demonstration stations 
which I think is what you came across in those photographs. And that was another project of his. And then he also had this third project called Day Schools. And they were kind of this new typology on Indian education where Collier, see, he's like an interesting guy in my opinion. He's trying to balance this idea of like progressive native identity but at the same time, he's still like very much so for like the Office of Indian Affairs facilitating these engagements between like a progressive native and, you know, making them independent, but also like, you know, you saw the federal government overseeing everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like I, what I, I first noticed, though, was the fact that you the way you pronounce his name, I always said just Collier, like that cauliflower, like I, I was imagining cauliflower. And so I, to hear it, how you pronounce it, it makes me wonder, but I think I'm gonna start pronouncing it that way. Um, but, <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> and so like, I, I, I generally agree with your assessment of the person he's, his ideas did not necessarily materialize in his policies. He does act as a reformer. And I was wondering for the audience, uh, if you could like just briefly do like a historical overview of the 30s, just so that we can contextualize it for the folks who are listening who may have never heard this kind of history. The 1930s, I think everyone's familiar with the fact that all of a sudden there's this huge economic decline and there's a need for a stronger kind of federal presence to kind of get things moving. And that's the story everyone's been told. But in terms of Native people, there's always been this tug and war between kind of tribal and federal relations. How much does the federal government have say and influence on native land? And to what extent can native people themselves govern? And so around when um, the 1930s take place, John Collier, he gets appointed the commissioner of Indian affairs. And previously, John Collier, he's a social worker who worked in uh, New York City, and he was working on tenement projects and immigration control. And it was kind of within this mindset that he kind of developed this idea of being kind of, I guess, self-reliant or people helping themselves. And so he has like, he's famous for like this one kind of idea where he was like, in the long run, Native people, like they have to be their own saviors and their own helpers. Um, and, but on the other hand, he also promoted the idea that, you know, in order to like have this happen, the Indian services needed to be controlled by this principle. Like everything the Indian services does should be to help Native people. All of a sudden you have John Collier who's appointed the commissioner of Indian affairs, that's point one. And at the same time, you have all this new federal funding that's being implemented by um, Roosevelt. And you have um, the different, I guess, like you could think of them as like the ABC agencies, right? WPA, um, <laughs> all of these kind of federal initiatives are being placed out. So what John Collier does is he's deciding that he wants to kind of use some of that funding and start an Indian New Deal one that's going to help Native people either help themselves, but also utilize this strong federal money being kind of put out into the world. And so it's the federal, um, the Indian New Deal is both monetary aid, but it's also tribal development policy being put in place by Collier. 
and he himself, along with several other New Deal, um, I guess, specialist agents, are addressing issues about soil conservation. If you remember previously before the New Deal took place, you had the huge dust bowl in Oklahoma. So, you know, that's kind of on people's minds, soil conservation. Um, but they also have like this idea of, oh, there's been a history of boarding schools on the reservation. How are you going to educate Native people uh, without it having kind of this trauma of the boarding school? Because Collier, he wants to like, be for the people, but still have some sort of federal control. And then also, you know, we just had the, this idea of sovereignties kind of popping up into conversation. What does native sovereignty look like? What does tribal self-rule look like? So you have all these threads that are kind of both tribal issues, tribal narratives, but then you also have the greater kind of context of the New Deal, which is large federal stimulus funding and federal programs being implemented. You summed it up perfectly as to the political, the, the political structures and the way that they're operating and the way that the Navajo people are kind of, let's see, the, the way that the government is starting to organize itself and to deal with this like issue of the Great Depression as well as the Dust Bowl. For me, I think one, one thing I always thought was really interesting geographically wise is the idea that like reservations, they acted as uh, a space for civilizing and like almost confinement of indigenous people. These policies, that are in the form of education as well as money. It like it, it definitely has like the what's the word? I'm trying to like get not to get too metaphorical, but like it has like the handprints of like Collier and the way that he was approaching it, which was multicultural, very embedded in ideas of like pluralism, um, that I think are ways of describing his approach that prior to was more of like a very blunt force trauma approach to civilizing quote unquote natives. If I, I read one, I read and I think I read in a book that like between like 33 and 1933 and 19, I want to say 37, Collier like invest or like used about $5.7 million in wages, which is like absurd considering the, the inflation numbers when you think about that today. Um, just to like get people to work and right, offset. just like so much. It's a lot of money, <laughs> right? So much federal funding. There was such an investment in native land and native people. But I think that's like the bigger question is like, were these policies an investment for like the people or the land that you know native our relatives occupy? And I think that's still a question that I'm in, like intrigued with right now, especially when we begin to think of this idea of modernity and the translation of modernity. Is it, you know, what's being modernized? Is it native people or the land itself? For me, when I was looking at this work of, you know, the um, demonstration stations in particular and land conservation, there was this idea that, you know, the land itself is this object from the past. And it's crazy because both Collier and there was this soil conservation scientist named Hugh Hammond Bennett. They started telling themselves these different stories about the land and the people. And in some ways, these narratives kind of became like a point of aspiration. 
So for example, on the soil conservation side, previously um, the land is seen as in a state of degrading. The soil is being eroded away um, and there's a lot of kind of mineral backup in the rivers that are going towards these huge dams that are being built um, in terms of like the region, right? So like Hoover Dam, as you and I know it, was previously built at the edge of native land. And there was this report that was generated that all of a sudden caught people's attention because they were afraid that increased soil um, erosion was going to like back up the dam and break it. And this had everyone in a tizzy because <laughs> like not only was the local region reliant on that, but further regions like California, the development of like the San Francisco Bay Area all of a sudden became reliant on this dam being built and constructed. And so there was kind of this question, like both Collier's policies on land conservation, along with like soil scientist Hugh Hammond Bennett, um, they were, you know, I think that's something that I've always kind of questioning, like what was their intent? Are they trying to preserve the land or are they trying to preserve the people? Because on one hand, it could seem like, oh, they're preserving the people. Look, they're building demonstration stations. They're helping the Navajo learn how to like practice agricultural sustainability and raise their sheep to not take over the land. But yet at the same time, like their motive is like, oh no, we have this damp. We gotta make sure this investment lasts a long time. <laughs> The importance of the livestock reductions in, I believe, 33, 34, and again, one in, I think, 1940, that the reports of both overgrazing and the dam blame Navajo people as like the culprits because of, I guess, practices. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were informed by the narratives that natives were uncivilized and needed to quote unquote learn proper land management and to be more efficient with their land use. So like, that's how I interpreted that. And I think you did a great job of like linking that to like this idea of like the region as to why you kind of pose this argument in terms of a region because of the, I guess for lack of, personally for lack of better terms, like the dialectical relationship between this particular group of peoples, Navajo people in their land and how that actually affects the region and vice versa as we start to see later on with other forms of extractive processes of water and coal. And I, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that narrative of modernity and how it started to actually materialize during this time period in the 30s, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. So when I first think of modernity, um, this word that comes up, right, it holds so much and it's hard to really understand what it's talking about. Um, in some ways, you can think of the modernity narrative as being centered on this idea of trying to either negate the past by destroying either certain associations or even modifying it. And when we begin to think about either the built environment, architecture, land, and the 1930s New Deal era policies on native land and specifically, there becomes kind of this dual role 
in signaling progress through kind of control of the built environment and how it's also being remained subject to the logic of heritage and culture. So when we, for example, going back to like the demonstration stations, right? Um, all of a sudden in the 1930s, you have federal officials who are kind of inventing and a narrative on the decline of native land, right? Because it benefits everyone. Um, it justifies why there's these herd reduction programs taking place within native farmers. It also helps make it so that you can focus and save this regional dam. Um, and the thing is they were using different ways to create this narrative, right? So historical land surveys were being used, both Collier and Hugh Hammond Bennett used them to begin to look and justify the fact that like, oh, look, there's evidence showing that like the land is actually eroding. <laughs> um, but also images became a large part of this too. Um, you know, both Bennett and Collier, they looked back at this historical account of kind of photographs of like the land. I can't remember by who it was. It was this one soldier who had like had this account of like showing all these photographs of like, you know, look how bounteous the Navajo land is. <laughs> um, but, you know, what's interesting is the narrative or like the modern gesture is like using heritage or a past state of being um, to begin to justify like intervention in the now and showing how like, it's weird. It's like this like heritage and narrative are some new form of logic that begin to guide like the action. So, yeah. <laughs> when I read it, I was connecting to a point you made earlier, which is this idea as to like, who are they doing this for? Like, is it, are they investing because they are trying to make the increase the value of the land or are they doing it because they genuinely want to like invest in Navajo people? Granted, you know, for me, I, I think maybe I'm just very cynical in the, I would say like the settler states approach to natives in a sense that it's always, it is always marked by that logic of elimination of settler colonialism that it's for me when I, I, I see it, I, and again, I, I have to look at the memos, but for me at my initial take from it was that they were not necessarily invested in the people. They were more invested in saving the land and like the future of the land. And it just so happened that Collier was someone who had a multicultural approach. And I would say I would base that on argument, just the fact that Collier didn't like really connect the, relationship that Navajo people had to their sheep and how like violent it was the, the amount of violence that folks had experienced during that time seeing just sheep in some cases sheep being slaughtered because they wouldn't make it to the market and they had to be slaughtered right there at the um the counting place I don't know what to call it uh so I I do I think that questioning of that you posed about like who are they doing it for I found very intriguing I agree. I think that when when we were mentioning like the modern gesture, I think that is it for me. It's like you're beginning to question the designation of what is traditional 
and you have individuals, Collier in this case, or institutions, the settler state, they're always drawing a line between the idea of what is progressive, what is archaic, and what is like a heritage that should be preserved. But it's never, you know, the native people deciding that heritage is what they think the heritage is. And the thing is, they're always moving that line, this line between what is progressive and what is like has a heritage. And and that's to, that's to their benefit. They're always trying, you know, if we're questioning if their motives for development during the New Deal on the reservation was for the people or for the land. The modern gesture was they were able to move that line wherever they wanted to get done what they needed done. <laughs> and I think that was very intentional on their part. You know, I think they wanted to be able to like turn back and say like, oh yeah, we're doing it to like save the land and like preserve assets. And, or they can turn around and say, oh, we're doing it for native people and preserving their culture. It was all the same thing. <laughs> I agree. I definitely agree. I think even that line, that drawing of the line between drawing the line between quote unquote, like traditional progressive relates to me the way I think about the binaries that come with modernity, which is old versus new nature versus man or I think it's nature and culture, whereas culture kind of symbolizes men or and even that like, see, very, <laughs> very, head on, uh, very like patriarchal in that sense. I'm, I'm saying men, but like uh, nature and society, I suppose, as well as just like binaries as well. And I think this is the way I interpret in modernity. I'm, I'm basing mine, my interpretation off of like how development studies have looked at modernity, the baggage, the regimes of development that are produced by modernity that like, oh, there's a certain way of progress that we have to go. And that progress is inevitable and that certain things will be justified the way that folks look at like colonialism and see, but like, you know, we have iPhones now, you know, like I think those arguments, at least for me, are part of this larger discourse of modernity. And what doesn't really get taken into account is the violence that occurs, as well as these like very nuanced arguments that are produced by it start to become revealed when native people start pushing back. They're, they start to challenge some of these assumptions I don't know if you've read the book for people for Navajo people, where it's a bunch of speeches and letters. No, I haven't. It they there's it, it pulls from um it pulls some of the speeches and letters, and and that's what I was in conjunction to your article. I was reading these letters and I was seeing the the way Navajo leaders who were predominantly men were discussing this like project and they were starting to challenge some of the assumptions as to like, well, how do you know that five sheeps equal a horse? And they're like, what does that mean? And then there was these ideas of like productive livestock and land that to me again, are like slowly connected to that idea that you're talking about, which is like progressive and traditional product or productive and non-productive, um, efficient and non-efficient, you know? I, I, I did, I told some of the students in my class, I'm like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta read this. You know, if you're, I mean, I, I, I in some ways I, I like, I, I was, I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably better than what I could say <laughs> for this final paper. Um, it's very concise to get to the point where I'm kind of rambling just like now I'm kind of rambling anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, 
I, I really, I really liked the argument and the way you would contextualize it. And you, the fact that you introduced me to that idea of like modern gestures, which is something I think is, is consistently in Navajo history and always like shifting back and forth wherever it's located. And I was wondering, like, do you, do you still think this discourse of modernity is eminent in today's politics and culture? And then if so, like, how do you see it materialized? I know it's a really big question. It's like a big thing, but I was, I was curious, just, you know, on your experience recently. You know, it's funny that you would ask me this question because currently I study architecture. And recently I've been doing a lot of work on public housing and looking at tribal housing in particular. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Because our people have like a very distinct way of dwellings and our homes have a very distinct relationship to land. You know, as a member of like the Diné tribe, there are many teachings about the Hogan and how the Hogan is situated within like a cosmic landscape. And people know that like the entrance should face east and the Hogan is an eight-sided um, shape, right? And when you begin to think about like, oh, what is the modern gesture of like designating traditions and how do you begin to signal pre progress? Um, you know, if we're thinking about architecture in the built environment, how does that happen? Um, how do you begin to move a nation forward? Um, let's say right now Navajo Nation faces a huge housing shortage. That's a legitimate problem. And, you know, how do you begin to house our relatives, our tribe members um, in a manner that is both efficient, but also, you know, if you want to pay heed to heritage, if you want to pay heed to culture, what, what does that look like? Um, and I think these questions of, you know, how do you meet the needs of like moving forward, but also like balance this idea of wanting to pay attention to culture or integrate Sinclair culture is still relevant. You know, I think I've seen Hogan's like, you see like a modern Hogan, <laughs> And sometimes you just have to wonder, you're like, okay, what the only thing modern about this is it's eight sides and there's a door that faces to the east. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's a question that I think a lot of people are juggling with, you know, how do you begin to, yeah, I mean, it's one that I don't even have an answer to is one thing like how do you move a nation forward that has a strong culture a strong heritage but also like balance the fact that there is this need for progress and like in the past it's always been the federal government who's facilitating that exchange um non i guess native people for the most part but all of a sudden now, like, you have to wonder, like, if Native people, if us ourselves were to oversee this change, like, what does that look like? So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, no, I, I think you hint at, you speak to a discussion that I was thinking about with a friend of mine. Uh, but we were thinking in terms of political and economic organization. 
and, and this is just because my own politics are, are very critical of capitalism. And I was like, well, what, what, what's a Navajo-based economy? What's a Navajo-based political structure? And I, I, I've spoken to some family about this, about like what a Navajo economy would look like. I've gotten mixed results, you know, as, as it should be. I think we're not necessarily monolithic in our approach. But that the, for me, the question that you're asking is, is a really important question, particularly because that's what our current discourse is. And I think for me, if the Navajo Nation is going to go forward, create goals and policies, and maybe reorganize it, we have to then start thinking at least like, how do we fit some of these values that we have in our culture? And what would that look like? Some folks have ideas. And I, I think for me, like, you know, it's, it's a question worth pursuing for the most part. But I think we should try to solve the housing crisis in this episode, in this podcast episode. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if only. <laughs> or even how do you begin to translate, you know, this heritage, the old, into the new? And who is facilitating that trans? such a such a complex question (laughs) but it does beg the question like what could native people really do if they didn't have the constraints of like this federal oversight (laughs) it's intense i think it just shows how messy and complex tribal federal relations have are and probably will continue to be (laughs) So I, I, I was kind of coming towards the, the, the tail end of this discussion. I was curious, you know, what are you interested in researching now? Like, what, what is it related to that article that you read or, um, you know, is it new? What's up, what's up with your research? <laughs> Currently, I'm studying at the Harvard GSD and getting a master's in architecture. So right now, my current interest is in design and learning design. However, when I wrote this article, there were a lot of questions um, about the built environment. I really liked investigating through historical practices. So a large part of the research done for this article was involved me going to the archives and looking at all these photographs, maps, memos, correspondences. And currently, I, I miss that. <laughs> I think there's, there's so many conversations that could be had about the Navajo Nation and development, in particular, the 1930s. I mean, that's a very rich period that's still very much so unresearched in my opinion. Right now, my interest is a bit divided. I still would love to continue to do this research on 1930s New Deal development on reservation lands. But also I've begun to do the work that requires, that is required of a MARC and have been thinking a lot about um, tribal housing and public housing in particular. And so, I guess we will see what will what will result next from this. You know, when I began researching these topics, this is always the end goal, right? To 
be able to share this knowledge, but in particular to be able to share it with another Diné Native scholar, I think that's the real highlight is these are communities, lands, issues that we know inside and out. And having conversations like this are like, in my opinion, the end goal. <laughs>